nuts and bolts, threaded fasteners, torque to yield, high tensile, all that good stuff that ordinary mortals just don't know, but probably should, before they get their domes and stick them in their engine bays or under their cars and wreak havoc. I'm John Cadogan from AutoExpert.com.au and I get new cars cheap. Australia only. Website. Card. Now, normally talk about new cars, car makers behaving badly, that's always a personal favourite. But I got this great question from a dude named Nige who's a bit confused about the finer points of the humble threaded fastener, which is something we all must come to grips with from time to time. And it strikes me there are so many things that ordinary mortals just don't know about these things. And they probably should before they get their hands on one of these or even worse, one of those. That's next. This report is sponsored by NordVPN. I'm no IT expert, but I've seen enough, especially lately, about data breaches, scams and hacks to know that being online is inherently risky and potentially very costly. You don't have to be tech savvy to use NordVPN. It's a simple one-stop cyber security solution. One click and you are protected from hackers, malware and pop-ups across as many as six devices. Go to nordvpn.com slash AEJC now and you'll get three to 12 months extra time on any two year subscription as part of Nord's 11th birthday celebration. Plus one more bonus month just for using the nordvpn.com slash AEJC link in the description. NordVPN is the world's fastest VPN and it only costs about as much as a cup of coffee every month to keep your data, your identity and your devices secure. NordVPN can also save you money because you can assign your virtual location to another country where, for example, flights and accommodation might be cheaper than they are back home. Same goes for streaming services. You can also access live sporting events and other content that may not be available where you actually live. That's a pretty small price to pay for cyber security, not to mention the potential savings also on the table. Go to nordvpn.com slash AEJC now to get a huge discount off your plan plus a free 11th birthday gift and all that additional free subscription time. Totally risk-free with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. That's nordvpn.com slash AEJC. Link in the description. And thanks to Nord for sponsoring this episode. It strikes me as beyond bleeding obvious that should you decide to go hands-on with a car at any point, sooner or later, actually sooner, you are going to have to get one of these and go hands-on with one of these. It's really that simple, or is it? Hopefully, I guess this is the first piece of advice, you're not using one of these because in industry, obviously, they go by the cute nickname, the nutfucker, and... This reputation is well earned. It is absolutely deserved. So the first piece of advice is last resort only. Otherwise, that's probably the best thing you can do with yo nutfucker. Now, I'm just a talking head on the internet, right? And if you're first time on the channel, you should ask yourself, why the hell should you listen to me about that? 
and you should ask that about every talking head video. It doesn't matter what it's talking about. What are the qualifications of that person? Do they know what they're talking about? Is their advice reliable? And uh, by way of potted history, here's why you should listen to me about this. Three quarters of my life ago, I got on my pushy and rode down to beautiful Meadowbank in Sydney and started working for a toolmaker. And his name was Charles Raiden, and I thought he was a bit of a cock off the bat, but he was only hard but fair, you know what I mean? And I grew to respect him greatly because he was kind of at the end of his career and he knew so much and opened my eyes to this bizarre but oddly compelling world where one thousandth of an inch really, really mattered, you know? And I guess that stuck with me because not only did I learn a shitload from him, I went on to become a mechanical engineer, which meant I've had my brain fully bled at university, doing endless physics and maths and things of that nature. And I worked in heavy industry for the whole time. So I worked with the railways, and for the first two years of that training, we were on the shop floor using all these awesome machines that just wanted to kill you. And yet, here I am, all ten fingers, done a shitload of work on nuts and bolts and bolted design and things of that nature so take that or don't but that's why i think you should listen to me about this because out there in the world there's sheds everywhere and there's all these dudes and they've got the tools and they've got the jobs they got the projects and there's plenty of them doing youtube showing you cool bolt up this and bolt up that with their cars but they don't know the basics. And I just look at some of it and I go, dude, come on. Just the basics, right? Like industrial basics 101. So this is kind of where I'm coming from with this video. And I want to be guided by this dude named Nigel Cox, who is from the United Kingdom back in the old Dart, Nige. But we won't judge him too harshly for that because he asks a series of really good questions and hopefully I can give you some matching answers to them. So Nige goes, my car, a Skoda Fabia, first mistake, has developed a squeak from the front suspension only in the cold weather, which sounds like a rubber bush rather than a metallic ball joint squeak. I see from my workshop manual that the suspension bolts are tightened to a torque setting then plus 90 degrees of angular rotation of the wrench, he means, right? For 100 years, we've just done things up tight without us all losing wheels. So the first question is why? Okay, so there's two kinds of bolted whatever. There's bolted stuff that really doesn't matter where the bolt is stressed so low that it's not likely to break and if things fall off, it's not a disaster. And then there's the other kind, which we're talking about. Now, this is where bolt tension really matters. And if things fall apart, it really does matter because you might be punting yourself through reality at 30 metres a second on the freeway when it all goes horribly wrong. So we've all done it one way. We've just done stuff up really, really tight for 100 years. I disagree with that. That's not how we've done it at all, certainly not in industry. We've been talking things up, so to speak, rather precisely since the 40s, the 30s, probably something like that. Certainly for the whole Apollo space program, we were talking things up pretty precisely using a variety of high-tech measurement systems to get the bolt tension in aerospace, just friggin' Goldilocks, right? I'm tipping the same sort of approach has been used by Lockheed Martin at the Skunk Works for 
at least 80 years kind of thing. I don't know how long the Skunk Works has existed, but at least since the 50s, I mean, they developed stealth. They were responsible for all kinds of really out there jet fighters. So none of this stuff gets done up really, really tight, right? So the question is all application specific, and I'd suggest that everything improves with time, automotive technology included. And it's a bit like medicine. You know, if you go to the dentist with a toothache or you go to the emergency department with a broken leg, would you rather have 100-year-old medicine or would you rather have today's medicine, dude? Like, have today's medicine would be my strong advice. Now, as to this whole doing things up plus 90 degrees, it's kind of like this. When you've got a bolted joint that really matters, like it really matters, okay, you've got to have a particular amount of stretch built into the bolt. The reason for doing the nut up is to stretch the bolt so that the bolt applies the right amount of clamping force to the work, whatever the assembly is. Like it could be a flange holding two pipes together for the cooling system of a nuclear reactor. It could be the bolts that keep your head on the cylinder block. All of this stuff really matters. And what we need to do is get sufficient clamping force so that the part doesn't fail, all right? And there's a few different ways to do that, but just doing it by hand is an absolute mistake. And what I'd suggest is you could do it with a torque wrench, but the whole torque wrench thing and assembly generally is highly variable because of the amount of friction with the components, right? It depends on the, the friction, which absorbs a great deal of the torque that you apply, depends on the lubrication of the fasteners, whether they're corroded or not. It depends on the surface finish of the part they're clamping to, because a rough finish will clamp up differently than a smooth sort of surface ground finish or milled finish, all of that stuff really matters. The other thing that matters is things like uh, how fast are you actually turning the torque wrench when you do that, because that's highly variable as well, and kinetic friction is different to static friction, and the speed that you use the wrench at really matters. And the torque is only loosely related to the tension in the bolt at best. And what they do in industry in practice is that they try and standardise as many things as possible. The best way to tighten, if this is an assembly that we really need to tighten up, it's just two washers on a cap head screw, okay, with a nut. If we really wanted to tighten that up, one of the best ways to do it would be to just tighten it up to a degree of preload that got the slack out of the system, like a minor assembly torque, and then we could rotate the fastener through 90 degrees. And because we know the pitch, and incidentally this is M12 by 1.75, so that the way metric threads work is M12 is the diameter of the male thread, right? It's sort of the outside diameter. And the 1.75 is the pitch in millimetres. So between the peaks of the thread is 1.75 millimetres. And that means that's about 1.8. Let's ghetto it, 1.8. And then half a turn would be 0.9 of a millimetre. And a quarter of a turn would be... 0.45 of a millimetre, so 450 microns kind of thing. And then you know what the stretch is, don't you? Because it's going to be 450 microns of stretch of the bolt. And if you know anything about the bolt, 
and you're an engineer, you can say that, yeah, half a millimetre of stretch, more or less, equals this amount of tension, equals this amount of clamping force, and we've got the bolt Goldilocks that's going to do its job. That's why these angular deflections are often measured in, uh, often specified in workshop manuals, because you get the slack out of the system, and then you stretch the bolt. It's just a way of standardising the whole setup, essentially. So the torque, the torque procedure really matters. Like, it really matters because what a whole bunch of engineers are doing is they're sitting down and they're saying, right, we need to service this component or we need to acknowledge that the component needs to be serviced in the field and it's going to be serviced by people who are not engineers and yet we need to give them a ghetto means of making sure that the bolts are adequately tightened so they stretch enough to clamp the parts together because that's the objective. The clamping force really matters. It matters with a cylinder head. It matters with the wheels on your car, like the wheel nuts holding the studs with the wheels sandwiched in between. That really matters. There's a whole bunch of things, suspension control arms, stuff of that nature. It really matters. The clamping force really matters. Now, I know that in sheds and garages around the nation, there are a whole bunch of dudes who think that they've got mad Jedi mind power <laughs> and they can just go oh yeah that's about right Trev right you're allowed to think that it's just that you're so full of shit if you do they've done experiments on this and in fact it's referenced in this brilliant book that you can find online from the bolt specialists Ajax okay it's a hundred and something page PDF so it's really interesting if you want to know about bolted joint design, you want to know how bolts work, there's a lot of valuable information in this and I've extracted a bunch of it for this report to you. So I'm not just talking out of my ass. A lot of this information comes from Ajax and they make the bolts, they'd want to know how they work, okay? According to Ajax, if you are a mad Jedi with the wrench, the best you can hope for based on their testing of exactly this is plus or minus 35%, right? So that's kind of nowhere when you think about it. But the challenging thing for me is what about if we use a torque wrench? Because a lot of people treat a torque wrench like it's just this hallowed device. They're, they're actually not that special and there are good ones and bad ones. This is an eBay special that I've had for years, okay? It's, um, it's okay. It does the job sort of thing, you know. There's nothing wrong with it. But the dudes at Warren and Brown, hashtag not sponsored, they sent me this torque wrench, which is just beautiful to use. Same sort of capacity. Goes from about 30 newton metres to about 200, which is very good for heavy-duty automotive, not so much trucking or heavy industry, but automotive applications. It's a pretty heavy-duty torque wrench, right? And the thing about torque wrenches is you want to kind of use them in the middle two-thirds of their range and the, and the one-sixth, like, let's say 15% up this end, the light end, and 15% up the heavy end, probably not so good in that range. But in the middle, they're really good. And 100, 110 newton metres sort of thing for a, a wheel nut. That's an M12 fastener typically. So a wrench like this would be super good. I love this because it's just so slick. It moves so easily. There's a sort of detent that allows you to adjust the, the vernier on the uh, setting scale, but then just leave it like that. 
doesn't loosen can't get this wrong like it's it's a really nice piece of kit they're famous for it actually warren and brown it's a real step up from the ebay special more expensive obviously but you get what you pay for so really nice and the challenging thing though even with a really nice torque wrench that's very well made by an australian company incidentally plus or minus 25% because of all the other variables, right? The friction and all of that stuff we discussed. So it's a substantial upgrade in accuracy, but it's not what I would call precision from the point of view of ensuring that we get the elongation of the bolt that we really need. Okay, the next step up, according to Ajax, is to go by some angular deflection, is to get your preload on, like take the slack out of it with a light torque, and then go 90 degrees, 120 degrees, 180 degrees, whatever it is. That's plus or minus 15%. So we've gone from the Jedi at plus or minus 35 to the good torque wrench, plus or minus 25, to the number of turns, plus or minus 15. So the turns is more accurate in terms of are we getting the stretch to deliver the clamping force. And then you can step up to load indicating washers, which are just particular washers that go under the fastener, and they change when they get to the load. And you go, fantastic, plus or minus 10% for them. So they're even better than the angular deflection method. Then there's direct elongation measurement, right? You can measure the stretch in the bolt. That's hard to do. In practice, it's, it's very difficult to do that, but if it really matters, you can do that. That's plus or minus three to 5% if you do that. And then the next step up, like proper aerospace shit, like experimental shit, you can strain gauge the fastener. And the strain gauge tells you exactly how much it stretches, plus or minus 1%. The interesting thing to me here is that Ajax have also quantified the relative cost of those different methods right so jedi is one multiplier of one one unit of cost for jedi mine powers plus or minus 35 percent it's roughly 50 percent more expensive according to ajax to use a torque wrench right it's three times the price of jedi to use the number of turns presumably because you've got to train people on how to do that it's not that straightforward the load indicating washers are about three and a half times the price of the Jedi mind trick. Direct elongation measurement, that's going to cost you 15 times as much. And strain gauges are going to cost you 20 times as much. So I'd suggest that you can get where you're going with either a torque wrench automotively. For most automotive applications, torque wrench is fine. And then for ones that are a bit critical or where the design is just a little bit more efficient, then a preload torque plus a final uh, tweak with an angular deflection is the most accurate accessible way to go so that's why we would do that stuff Nigel goes on now and says secondly these things are sometimes described as TTY or torque to yield surely this is a misnomer if we torque any bolt to the yield point we've gone too far and we need to replace it and try again I'd suggest that torque to yield is not a misnomer and Angular deflection of the fastener to get to the final torque setting is not necessarily an example of torquing the bolt to yield. But we need to think about what we mean by yield, okay? And here's just a piece of shitty old strapping steel, 
Okay, it's really thin, quite flexible, and it serves to illustrate a point. Being that steel's elastic, you can do this to it, and it always comes back to its previous shape, right? We, we all see this. You can do it with the coat hanger that comes from your dry cleaning. It just behaves like this all the time. It springs back to its original shape, unless you do this. And then it just bends, right? Bends more and more and more. And it's easy to bend it if it's thin, and it's hard to bend it if it's a big steel beam. But the behavior is all the same. And this process is clearly there's a point at which the deflection becomes permanent and that point is called the yield point. When you're just doing this, you know, and it rebounds to its original shape all the time, that's in the elastic range. And when you do this, it's in the plastic range. But the really interesting thing about steel, incidentally, the thing that's good and bad, is that when you bend it permanently like that, it rebounds elastically. If it comes back to a different shape, but the actual rebound, like even if you crunch it right up, it's always relaxing a bit like that. And that leads to a couple of problems in industry, like you know you've seen in car factories where they stamp out the steel panels for the doors and the bonnet and the roof and the, the whole platform of the car is stamped from sheet steel, okay? The dies, like the male die that comes down, the female die sitting on the floor and the massive press in between, the like that they're not the shape of the panel they're the shape of the panel plus the elastic bit of the deformation because as soon as the male die comes off the female die the panel goes and it rebounds elastically and that means some wonk has to sit in R&D and figure out the three-dimensional implications of pressing the steel like that and exactly what the rebound is going to be because the car wouldn't fit together if the dies were the same shape as the door. They have to be the same shape as the door plus the elastic bit, which is a really spooky black art in R&D for manufacturing. Trust me on this. Talk to yield is not a misnomer, but it's not the same thing as doing a fastener up to a preload and then moving the wrench through 90 degrees to get to the setting. What torque to yield means is we're going to do the bolt up and get it right on the verge of permanent deformation, right? What that basically means is we're going to use all of the elastic stretch capacity of the bolt. That's pretty scary. You wouldn't want to step over it too much because if you use a high quality fastener, like a high tensile fastener, grade uh, class 10.9 or even 12.9 would be even worse. What happens is this yield point that marks the edge of the elastic region and the peak of the curve, which is called the ultimate tensile strength, and after that, failure is more or less guaranteed those points come together. They're closer and closer together. That's one of the negative feedbacks of using high tensile materials. Like if you've ever broken one of these, which is just a basic M12 tap, it doesn't give you any warning that it's going to fail. It just snaps, which is kind of frustrating and uh, very difficult to get out typically. So don't do that would be my number one piece of advice with that. But the, the problem is you have to be precise if you do torque to yield. Torque to yield is increasingly common in things like cylinder head bolts because what it means is 
where previously you might have had to use uh, an M10 fastener or M12, let's say you could get away with M10, you can now get away with M8 because you're using more of the elastic capacity of the bolt to derive clamping force. The problem is if you get it wrong, you go over, it's not going to work, it's going to fail, and you've got to throw the bolts away, you can't reuse them. See, the way most high tensile fasteners are worked out, this is a basic M12 by 1.75 class 10.9 high tensile socket head cap screw, basically. And it's worked out so that if you torque it according to the torque setting in the handbook, it'll be infinitely reusable because only a small percentage, roughly about half, of the total elastic capacity of the bolt is ever exploited, and that gives you durability. But the problem with doing that sort of thing for a cylinder head design is cylinder heads are really complex. They need water passages and oil galleries, and you've got to fit a combustion chamber in there and fuel injectors and a spark plug, and all of these things take meat, if you like, and you need a boss or a boss-like area for the fastener to go through, and that all costs money to design in. So if you can change from M10 to M8, you're going to save money on the fasteners and on the design and free up some other design constraint, like uh, you might be able to get the water passage to work better if the boss for the fastener is smaller. And let's not forget, it's not just one fastener. We're talking about multiple fasteners to hold a head onto a block. And that means that the design is just better optimised. The flip side of which is if you have to replace the cylinder head, you have to throw the bolts away. So there's that. I want to talk to you just in some greater detail about how the stresses in these bolts work when you do them up, quote unquote, properly. I'm not talking about torque to yield now. I'm just talking about doing them like a conventional, using a torque wrench or using a preload plus angular deflection method. Okay. This is a class 10.9 fastener. It's in the middle of the metric classes of high tensile fasteners. The entry level is 8.8, .8, this is 10.9, the top is 12.9. The ultimate tensile stress of this, like the point at which if you keep the load on it's just going to run away and break, is 1040 megapascals. Don't get too caught up with the megapascals, it's a bit confusing if you're not used to it. It's really just newtons per square millimetre and 10 um, newtons per square millimetre is about a kilo per square millimetre. It works like that, but just think of the number. It's about a thousand before it breaks. Okay, the, the yield point is about 940, all right? The proof load, which is thought, you can think of that like a test load that the bolt has to endure. You're going to batch sample these bolts to make sure they conform. You subject them to a proof load if they don't break good enough, if they don't yield good enough, right? Um, and the torque for assembly, which is typically specified to be about 65 to 75% of the proof load, is 580 megapascals. So if we think about it, just think about the numbers. Ultimate tensile strength, 1,040. It's going to yield, like that's where the deformation starts to be permanent, at 940. So we've got 100 meat in the sandwich. We've got 100 worth of meat there. 830 for the proof load, which is about another 100, and then 580 for the torque setting. 
If you compare the 580 to the failure at 1040, that's about half. And it's slightly more than, no, slightly less than half of the weight to yield. But we've still got a good 30% to go to yield, more than that actually, more like 40%. So when you do this up using a torque wrench, even given the variability, you're still comfortably below the yield point of the fastener and that allows you indefinite reuse subject to you know environmental factors corrosion things of that nature if all those numbers are doing your head in let's just look at it easier okay this is m12 by 1.75 and these next numbers are going to change depending on the size and the grade of the fastener but the proof load of this thing is 70 kilonewtons which is roughly seven tons it's not going to break till you get to 88 kilonewtons, which is roughly eight and a half tons, but let's call it nine. All right, so it's going to break at about nine. We can proof load it to about seven. But when we do it up using the torque setting in the manual, which is about 109, I think it is, newton meters, that's only going to load it to four and a half tons. So loaded up to four and a half doesn't break till about nine perfectly conservative and compatible with infinite reuse provided the fastener is undamaged not corroded etc nigel goes on and says i've replaced stretch bolts before when well all bolts stretch that's the whole point right so they're all stretch bolts i think you mean torque to yield bolts but when replacing cylinder head gaskets and advice from the vehicle manufacturers has varied on one hand they said if they thread smoothly and are within a length limit, they are good to go again. Another says always replace. Any idea why the different advice? Yeah, okay, so here's a ghetto hack. If this is a high tensile fastener and you don't know if you can use it again, this is a really good test. If you get right to the end of the thread by hand, I'd have 75, 80% confidence that this fastener could go again. The reason I say that is because if the fastener has yielded at some point in the thread, and let's face it, it's going to yield in the thread because that's where the diameter is the smallest. Tensile stress works like force over area. The cross-sectional area is the smallest in the root of the thread. If it yields, it's going to stretch there. The nut's not going to thread on. So if you can thread it the whole way down to the end of the thread, you can be reasonably confident, 75 to 80% con confidence, right, that the thread is okay. The reason I say only 75 or 80% is that right down here at the root of the thread, it might have yielded right down there, and the nut doesn't go all the way down there, right? It just stops there anyway. So there might be some yielding happening down there near the root of the thread, and this test is not good for that. So I'd be looking at the overall condition of the fastener. I'd be seeing if the threads were spalled at all down near there. But, you know, generally bolts are cheap and cylinder heads are expensive. So replace the bolts if you possibly can but it's not a bad ghetto hack if you're in the middle of nowhere and another bolt is not easily accessible and you might have to do a running fix the ghetto nut rundown test is not a bad one to know okay so nigel goes on and says when tightened is it just the bolt shank that stretches or do the threads stretch a little too 
The threads will be constrained somewhat wherever they are, such as into the cylinder block or maybe just a normal nut. Okay, so let's do a thought experiment about stretching, okay? And let's have a threaded fastener that works like this. You know, you've got a couple of washers and you tighten it right up, really, really tight. According to the manual, it stretches the bolt. Everything from the engagement face here on the head to the engagement face of the nut is going to be in tension the same tension because that's how tension works right tension for dummies you do a tug of war using a piece of rope okay and you get a really really strong dude here and a really really strong dude here he pulls with 100 kilos of load and he pulls with 100 kilos of load what's the tension in the rope is it 100 plus 100 equals 200 or is it just 100 it's 100 Okay, but the tension in the rope is the same everywhere between here and here. It's absolutely the same and the bolt is absolutely no different. The tension is the same at every point in the bolt. So all of the bolt stretches save for the head and the stretch probably varies a little bit inside the nut but there's no stretch outside the nut obviously and all the washers do is spread the load onto the part and they transfer the load back to the engagement faces on the fastener and on the nut okay that makes perfect sense to me but what really is important to realize is that the cross-sectional area varies and the part that is really vulnerable to failing is the threaded part of the fastener because that's where the cross-sectional area is the least and it's right down in the bottom of the V the so-called minor diameter of the thread where yielding is going to take place first that's just how this works so the failure of the bolt will not occur in some sort of progressive way or permanent stretch of the bolt will not be progressive across its entire length it's going to be in one point it's going to be the weakest point and the other thing to consider is that not all threads are equal uh, rolled threads are more durable than cut threads and right down here in the bottom of a cut thread the, the V can be a little bit uneven and that can serve to act as a bit of a notch and notches are really bad in loaded components because that's a so-called stress riser because in a V-shaped notch the residual stresses are badly resolved and it can lead to cracking and runaway failures and things of that nature. That's why apart from anything else if you're ever repairing a component that's cracked like you're going to braze it or weld it it's really important to find the head of the crack and drill a hole in it to stop that propagation okay so stress rises generally are a bad thing it's why in industry you know if you're working on a lathe and you're turning a shaft down so that it can fit into whatever and there's a shoulder with a larger diameter say it's a pin then you've always got to try and get a radius on the inside corners and they often undercut those with a, a round uh, carbide tip tool so that you don't have a tight 90 degree corner that can act as a stress riser in these situations so that's probably more than you ever wanted to know about you know stresses and stretch and things of that nature but it's important to realize that the stress on the bolt is not constant even though the tension is the stress is related to the specific diameter where it acts and Nigel goes on now and says strangely the advice differs for different suspension fastenings on the Fabia one bottom arm bush has a bolt and nut and we're told to replace both. The other bush has a bolt and it's into a captive nut in the subframe. We're told to replace the bolt but not the subframe. 
is the captive nut somehow stronger or more likely the same and replacing the subframe would be silly? Yeah, there's more to it than that. Though. So surely replacing the free nut might be optional too. Yeah, it might, but the nuts are so cheap. The advice being just risk averse. Yeah, risk adversity is a pretty good thing to have. Nice conservative risk adversity when it really matters, when there's something up overhead that could fall and hit you on the head. You know, be risk averse. The anti-roll bar mountings have bolts to be replaced, but the clamps with the captive nuts can be used again. Okay, so what I'd say about that is that nuts are generally stronger than bolts. Generally, you don't see the nut fail when you talk something up. The bolt fails. The bolt's got the small minor diameter. It's in tension. There's more sort of shearing effect, and it's hard to be... It's hard to be absolutely make sweeping generalizations about nuts because manufacturing tolerances matter, you know, like really shit nuts. Like, here's a really shit nut and a really shit bolt from Bunnings. And there's nothing wrong with it if all you're doing is using it to, I don't know, put a, a column like a wooden post in a in a stirrup that's in the concrete kind of thing that's fine but these are really shit bolts they, there's a lot of play and they just feel bad and there's a lot of clearance and that means not as much thread engagement as with a high quality bolt with a high tensile fastener which just feels really slick it also depends how big the nut is as in how long the nut is in an axial sense so that means more threads are engaged and that makes the engagement stronger. But in any case, it's rare to see a well thought out nut fail. It's much more likely that the fastener is going to fail, right? So replacing the nuts is less critical and obviously replacing a captive nut is a complete pain in the ass. You'd have to drill it out and weld another one in or gouge it out and weld another one in and then you introduce all these variables such as it might not be in the right place or the welding might not be particularly good either. So there's that. I'd suggest that if a captive nut fails, you could always just drill it out and put in a helicoil, you know, like a threaded insert. It doesn't have to be a helicoil. But any of those threaded inserts would be fine for most of these applications because the alternative is a really complex job, right? Um, replacing the nuts. Nuts are cheap. Like nuts like this are cheap. They cost almost nothing. Why would you reuse them, especially if they've been in service and they're a bit corroded and you don't know about the history? With the captive nuts. Now, what I would do with them is, in practice, I get the world's cheapest high-speed steel M12 by 1.75 tap, which you can get for virtually nothing on eBay, and I would just very carefully, with a lot of lube, I would run it into the captive nut just to get rid of any residual uh, thread sealing compound or Loctite sort of thing you know and to clean up any corrosions to, and that would reduce the number of variables when you talk the whole thing back up. The other thing I'd suggest about lubrication this comes up all the time and Ajax goes into great detail about that in the handbook okay what we're talking about here is do you do the bolts up unlubricated or lubricated and what does that mean according to ajax the so-called dry torque setting actually means for a lightly lubricated fastener like this one which has basically just come out of the packet when it comes out of the factory it's coated in a light amount of machine oil obviously right 
And that's what they mean when they say unlubricated. They don't mean get your fastener and wash it in acetone to get the oil off. That's a bad idea. Okay, so in practice, what Ajax says about lubrication and fasteners is that if you're using anti-seize and you're applying it somewhat liberally, then knock 30% off. And there are also other correction factors for the lubrication effects of galvanization, because if you're using a zinc-coated nut, it's going to have different frictional properties than a black mill finish kind of nut or a bare bright nut. Okay, so you need to be aware that there are torque multiplication modification factors that come into play depending on the different surface finishes of the nuts. And that's why it's often a really good idea with components that matter to buy the actual replacement from the manufacturer as opposed to just a fastener with the same basic specifications. Like M12 by 1.75 class 10.9 is fairly constant, but they come galvanised, they come bright, they come black finished, and you can choose to assemble them lightly oiled or heavily greased. And you need to put the right modification factors in if you know what you're doing. Alternatively, just do it absolutely by the book because quite often a lot of these things matter, like they really matter. I put together a, uh, a gantry for the other fat cave the other day and it's basically an A-frame with a crane on it you know, like a light crane. It's only a one-ton thing, but it saves you back when you're lifting a couple of hundred kilos out of the back of the ute, right? You just wheel her up with the chain block and that's a whole bunch easier than trying to reverse deadlift and decline curl a really heavy thing out of the back of your ute. And it made me think about the obvious things that people don't know, such as if you're putting bolts in something like that overhead, it's always a good idea to have a look up overhead and see how they're going over time, right? So you've got a couple of different options. You're putting something together, like you're putting together a trolley that holds a chain block and a beam in your shed or your garage. Which way do you put the bolts? Do you put them this way? you put them up that way? Or do you put them that way? I'd put them this way every time because if they come loose, there's six or eight bolts, let's say, that hold a particular joint together in a device like that because redundancy is important. If they come loose over time, here's what you're looking at. You look up and there's a hole where there should be a bolt. There's just a nut sitting up there on the other side of the flange. If you do it the other way, if you've got this, then when you look up there, you're still seeing the end of the bolt, right? And if you're looking up there and it's some distance away, it can look quite okay but you're never going to look at this, just that, sitting on the bottom of a flange, see daylight through it kind of thing. That's much easier to spot. So there's considerations like that to think about. And then there's how are you going to cope with so socket head cap screws because how do you torque up a socket head cap screw? Because you can put an M10 uh, hex key in a M12 socket head cap screw and that's fine, but unless you're a Jedi... How are you going to know? How are you going to get 109 newton metres out of that? Good luck with that. Good luck with Arnie doing that. The way to do it is you just buy a hex driver to go in your torque wrench. 
you can get them for impact as well. And the beauty of the impact ones is if it's an ugga-dugger job, right, that's compatible with that. But it's also fully compatible with the precision job as well, right? So that's nice. If you need to ghetto it up in a hurry and you've got a spare 10 millimeter Allen key, just get a zip disc on your angle grinder, cut an inch and a half off the end of your Allen key, and if you can find a 10 millimeter socket, there's your ghetto driver. Okay, that'll work just fine as well. 109, whatever it is, Newton meters. Dead easy with your torque wrench. That's how you do it if you're dealing with a socket head cap screw. And obviously, socket head cap screws have some really good advantages because a bolt like a hex head, outside hex head bolt, takes up a lot of real estate on the part, whereas you can counterbore a socket head cap screw so that it's below the surface of the part. And this is really important when clearance matters, like operational clearance. So there's that. What else? Lots of suppliers for the bushes, says Nige, but even the Skoda dealer does not stock any of the bolts, having never used them. If I want them, they want me to buy a bag of 10, of oh, friggin' course, when I only need four of each. It seems the dealer does not think replacement critical, despite missing another profit opportunity. Yeah, there's that. But I can't believe, Nige, that you're seriously writing to me complaining about having to buy six additional bolts, because unless they're like 50 bucks each, just suck it up like a big boy, use the original bolts, and you're saving all of the labour anyway, and you'll have six spare bolts that you can use for Christ knows what down the track, even if it's just pins or shims, or you cut them up, or you're having fun in your fat cave and you just need a M12, whatever, you just zip a bit off, and there it is, there's your pin to make a ghetto bar bender or something. And in the context of problems that those Volkswagen shitboxes can impose upon you, I'd suggest this one is a fairly minor problem. So anyway, that's all I got for you at the moment for nuts and bolts. If you've got any other questions, I'll try and answer them in the comments. You can send me an email via the website. I'm really into this stuff and I hope uh, you've learned something from this because I've dredged up a lot of this from the ancient past and uh, hopefully it'll just give you a better toolbox mentally the next time you're dealing with any kind of threaded fastener, you know, out there on your car.